Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I promise you, this week's book isn't a pandemic novel. I'll say that straight up because, well, we've had quite a few of those, and I, for one, could do with a break. Hang on though, just just wait a minute while I check the next few weeks' worth of guests. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're good. Not a pandemic novel in sight. Malcolm Devlin's And Then I Woke Up is a novella about infection, and quite a nasty one at that. But there's no coughing, there's no vomiting, and zero need for masks or hazmat suits. No, the disease Malcolm gives us is purely of the mind. And Then I Woke Up is about the power of narrative to corrupt perception and, essentially, corrupt reality. It's about what happens when media and propaganda and culture overwhelm our perspective of the world. Entirely for the worst, in this case, I'm afraid. It's quite a tricky novella to synopsize, actually, and you can hear Malcolm and I struggle with that. In fact, I should say, this is an episode in which we use the book as a springboard for all kinds of philosophical concepts and ideas. But that means we perhaps wander away from the actual story a little more than usual. Also, I've got to admit, Malcolm is a fairly unassuming and humble guy. I'm not. And his book got me spewing my thoughts all over the place. So I'll say sorry now for quite how much I talk in this episode. The edit made me cringe. Malcolm and his book do have fascinating things to say, though, from the political power of storytelling to the sinister subtext of zombie TV shows and and how comic book geeks and gun nuts may find things in common when society breaks down. And everything is accompanied by the lovely, lilting call of the minor birds outside Malcolm's window, which I initially thought was a squeaky chair. So, come with me to an unspecified city somewhere in the Western world. You can trust nothing here, especially not your own eyes. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Malcolm, and well, thanks so much for joining me on Talking Scared. How are you today? Um, Very well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. This is a ripe chance for me to wax lyrical about all kinds of political issues that are close to my heart. So you can you kind of wrote wrote the book as the perfect launch pad for that. So so thanks to you. Okay. This is my second time speaking to Australia in as many weeks. Last week we had Alan Baxter, and now you. Whereabouts in Australia are you? Um, I'm up in Brisbane, so I'm on, uh, just north of Brisbane, in fact, I'm in a place called Sandgate, which is just on the coast. Uh, so we're, up in, we're in Queensland, which is a bit further north than Ireland, right down in New South Wales. Right, okay. I'm piecing this together by speaking to people from each different part of the country. So so we've got <laughs> we've got Queensland ticked off. Excellent. Well, I mean, my listeners will have guessed already, I imagine, that you aren't native to that part of the world. Uh, how long have you been over there? No, um, I'm from the UK originally. Um, uh, my wife's Canadian. Uh, we moved here in 2019. So we've been here for a few months, just enough time to settle down. And then, of course, we ended up in lockdown for two years or whatever. Oh, wow. Australia just shut all the doors to everybody. So we've been sort of st- stuck here since uh, every- all of that kicked off. In some ways, that's a good move because Australia did really well, didn't it? But at the same time, I imagine it was pretty frightening yeah. when you're in a new land and all this shit's going down. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we missed most of the worst of it. Definitely. 
But um, it did feel as though they just went, okay, we're just going to close all the doors. No one's coming in. No one's getting out. Uh, we thought, oh, yeah, we, we, we got friends back there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're well. Anyway. That's the main thing. You got through it. And, and regardless of where you wrote the book we're going to talk about today, it does have a kind of global relevance. So, so the book in question is, it's a novella called And Then I Woke Up. And I described it in my typically understated terms as the best allegorical novel since Animal Farm. <laughs> oh, God almighty, I don't know if I can live up to that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I say these things, but I, I, I genuinely can't think of the last time I read a book with so few pages that had so many ideas that spoke to the current moment. Um, but before we get into all of that rich subtext, we probably need to lay out the actual text. So can you tell us a little bit about And Then I Woke Up? Uh, sure. So, I mean, it's a bit tricky because uh, there, there are some twists, but it's um, it's about a, a guy who is living in a treatment facility, should we say a halfway house for people who have been cured of a particular disease which has been sweeping the planet. And it's a disease which looks like something which people might have seen before, perhaps. <laughs> this is interesting, actually, isn't it? I'm actually very good at describing my own story. Um, Few writers are. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make out has been cured of this disease. Um, but uh, he gets the impetus to go back out in the world and see how things have changed and maybe, I don't know, screw things up again for himself. However, things aren't quite what they seem. I used to describe it as a zombie story without any zombies in it. I don't know if that covers <laughs> that. That does cover it. I'm glad you said the Z word because it allows us to have a conversation about certain things. Um, although we should say right from the get-go, this, this is in no, by no means anything approaching your typical zombie novel. When I was preparing for this interview, I, I read about your collection. So you've got a collection of short stories called Unexpected Places to Fall From unexpected places to land now i haven't read it itself yet and i do intend to but i thought i'm going to go and do some research so i read about the collection i read loads of reviews and things and i know i've already made one really grandiose comparison to george orwell so here's another one <laughs> it, it sounds like those stories have this kind of um borges sense of story as thought experiment is that fair is that you know is there any degree of truth in that do you think well i, I, I again i think that comparison seems awfully grand from where i'm sitting um also Bokes is an awful lot more concise than i am um i, I, I tend to waffle in a lot of my things i, I don't know i i, I think I, I i like playing with genre stories because i think they sort of provide interesting openings to explore things maybe um I think a lot of the stories in uh, Unexpected Places are less horror. Uh, they might verge more towards science fiction, I think, or fantasy. Um, but they, they tend to be a little bit on the weird side because I don't, I don't tend to steer them down sort of more straightforward lines. I don't know, that makes me sound awfully sort of a bit wanky. This is two British people talking here, crippled by our own inability to compliment ourselves. <laughs> yeah. What, what I'm getting at, I suppose, is that, um, and then I woke up, seems to have a similar idea of fiction as this laboratory for ideas not just for story 
in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think um, I think and then I woke up is very much an extension of the sort of stories that I think that I write in the collection. But I think that because this is obviously the first time I've been published by an American publisher, I think this is going to have a wider audience than I've ever had before, and people might be expecting more horror-focused things when they look at any of the short stories I've written previously. Okay. okay. But I think that you're right. I think that the structure of them is, well, what happens if we uh, look at this and then we keep pushing it and pushing it and see how far it goes? I think that's the same sort of style that I've been doing for a while. In one of my previous um, short stories, which is a book previous to that one, uh, I wrote one called Dog's Body, which is a werewolf story which doesn't have any werewolves in it, for example. So, so it sounds like a bit of a theme. Um, and I think that one, that story in particular, I think sort of serves as a sister story to, and then I woke up. So you, yeah, it seems you do have a penchant for writing st- stories set in a particular subgenre and then extracting the monster. Yeah. I, I, for a while I had this time when I would come up, I, I, I'd have an idea for a story and then I, by the time I came to writing it, I basically abstracted it to the point that most of the genre stuff had fallen out of it. And that's not because I don't like genre stuff or I don't have any respect for it. It's just I find when I'm writing it, it's much easier to do the stuff in between that. It, it, if we agree then that, you know, you are a, a writer of ideas, which feels like a designation I'm forcing on you, but I, I, I'm going to stick by it. Um, then what, what I suppose, the question, I suppose, the obvious starting point is what was the central idea that you wanted to experiment with? in and then i woke up um well there's there's, there's a few things i think sometimes you find a sort of bunch of different ideas and then you realize that they're actually the same story it's just from different points of view um and some of them are just you know ridiculous and whimsical but i i originally wrote and then i woke up before the pandemic so although there is a pandemic in the story it's complete coincidence that happened to be released uh in the aftermath or continuation of one in the real world. My original working title for it, and this just sounds a little bit flippant, was the the, the Brexit zombie story. <laughs> um, because I was interested in the way that with the, sort of the rise of false narratives, perhaps, in the media, and the fact that people would believe them wholesale and defend them to the extent that they would end up perpetuating them further rather than stepping back and trying to figure out where they came from. You could see that sort of in America and the, the UK and uh, many other places as well. And so I was interested in that and why that was happening and how that was happening. But then from a sort of, from a separate point of view was, I think I caught a zombie TV show, I think. I don't know which one it was. It wasn't The Walking Dead. It was something else. And there was this scene, I think, where the characters were basically just admiring each other's guns. And it struck me that most zombie stories, an awful of zombie movies, uh, more so now than there were when uh, George Romero was first making his zombie movies, are very much survival fantasies and this idea that it's a survival fantasy where you actually have license to kill people that you don't like because they are monsters. And it struck me, wouldn't it be interesting if The Walking Dead had the balls to end its series with having everybody just wake up and it turned out it was all a dream? And I just wondered if that would actually make things worse, if that's more horrific, even though the idea of it being all a dream is such this terrible cliche. Uh, I thought it was fascinating, the idea that if that happened in that context, it could actually be more horrifying than whatever they, they come up with in the first place. And so those two ideas sort of just kind of glued themselves together. Yeah, and... I've done, I've, I've done the spoiler thing, haven't I? No, no, not at all, because I think we are <laughs> going to have to... I, I think there are definite <laughs> ways to talk a bit more about what's really going on in this world without ruining the story, because I'm trying to think back to what I knew 
before I started reading this book and whether whether that ruined it for me and and it didn't so let's go as far as to say it, it's a story about how the idea of fake news and false narrative that we are all suffering under can become a, 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 a literal disease isn't it yes. essentially yes and the idea of the of what infected means in a zombie novel is actually spun on its head. So the, the typical generic understanding of the zombie of, of infected in that world is you know the walking monsters, the, the undead. But of course, in in this world, the infected sea monsters they don't become them. In, in the original draft of it, actually, the um, the reveal, if you like, came much further into the story. But um, Alan Alan Dantlow, the editor, talked me into getting that out of the way a lot earlier. Yeah, because it, it's not really a book that I don't think of it as a twist. I just think of it as a an, an unveiling of the situation, you know, rather than a twist. You're not pulling the rug from under anyone's feet. No, and I think that's important. I think it's the fake uh, withholding of information in order to sort of generate tension, which I'm sort of thing I was trying to avoid. Mm. As you, yeah, it's, it's not really a twist, I suppose. It's um, because as far as the characters are concerned, they already know this. Yeah, it's just a clever situation. But of course, I just said then about how you, you invert the normal idea of monstrosity and and that you know the the infected sea monsters they don't become them going back to what you just said about the idea of the, of the walking dead characters waking up and, and and the implication of that being more horrifying you could say that the infected do still become monsters in this in this oh, story yeah. of yours and um, because of because the real horror in my eyes is is the later reckoning the emotional reckoning that comes once the infected learn the truth of the matter and then they have to confront the things they've done whilst under the power of this infected, infective narrative. Um, and it actually really, it made me think of Russia at the moment, actually. And it made me think of, you know, what, what would happen or what will happen when all of a sudden everyone is, is freed from Putin's propaganda? What, and what will their reckoning with themselves be? I, mean, that, I think that's a really good example and a really pertinent one. Um, but I think it is interesting that you're sort of seeing this all over the place. Some viewers is too. We're talking about the uh, uh, pandemic beforehand and the people who are sort of the refusing vaccinations because they've heard that's one thing about them and then they end up dying. And you get these sort of strange feedback loop where people are angry with the people for denying the denying themselves the, the vaccine, for example, and then cheering when they die in hospital of the disease that they could have saved themselves from. Mm. And you've got this sort of strange um, thing where everybody just ends up sort of sinking to the same level in some way. You can see it in, you know, as you say, all over the world, you can see it in the Republican Party, you can see it in the British Tory Party, and this is me getting on my soapbox, you know. That's fair enough. This doubling down in support of awful politics because... The alternative is to confront the truth of how far you have fallen. It feels like a lot of this is being dissected in the, in your novella. The idea of you have to commit to the narrative because if not, you realise that that you are monstrous. Yeah, I think so, and I, I think it's a very hard thing to come to terms with and hard thing to admit to. I think um, people who do fall down these wells 
it's very very unlikely. Well, it's very rare that you actually see them going. Actually, this, this mistake. This is how it's supposed to be, and that was all terrible. I'm just trying. To, you know, I can't even. I'm trying to think of an actually example of somebody say coming back and saying, uh, "Okay, coming out of it." For example, I don't think there is an example. I think everyone these is so just entrenched in their in their um, sort of you know bunkers of. Of, of thought, I, I I can't think of an example of where anyone has come out with the humility to say maybe I was wrong or or maybe. I think what's bit... interesting in terms of the current, current politics is the fact that even though everybody knows now that, for example, the Tories lie, they do it anyway and they keep doing it anyway because they know they can get away with it now. Mm. And in some ways, they're leaning into the infection if you want to pretend that that's what it is, and using it in order to achieve whatever it is they're trying to achieve rather than actually it's, it's, it almost becomes cynical rather than unconscious i think that's there we go there's a sequel <laughs> yeah yeah because that isn't the case in your book the, the characters who are under the sway of this narrative this this false sense of reality you know it they aren't cynical they are true believers aren't they in in, in the yeah the majority yes which seems to me a more sympathetic take on this metaphor than it could have been? Well, that's because I think I'm not particularly interested in writing a one-to-one um, metaphor. I don't particularly want to write a story that's just wagging its finger at people. I think that's quite uninteresting to read. I, th- I, th- I think that we are, I think everybody is susceptible to that sort of thing anyway, even if we pretend, even if we think Brexit, on this particular instance, we're on the right side, we can see what the truth is. It's very possible that there's so many other things that we're not seeing the truth of. And we're still sort of going along and acting, not necessarily in the same damaging way. But I think people are susceptible to this, even if they're sort of saying, well, I'll be fine. Like, I, I know what's right. I know what's real. So I, I, I didn't want to sort of do something which is just going, well, these people are bad. These people are all bad. And this happened because they're bad people. Because I don't think that's a particularly interesting story. To, to pick up there, I suppose, I said right at the start that this book has global application. And we've just said there, you know, that if you do take it as a metaphor, you know, it fits the UK, it fits uh, the US. I'm sure it fits Australia with Scott Morrison and, and all his, oh gosh, his yeah. fine works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the setting of the book is never actually specified, to the best of my knowledge. And I think you can read the city that it takes place in as either American or Australian um, I didn't think it was British, but it certainly could be either the U- US or Australian to my eyes. Is there an answer or, or, or does it even matter where it's set in that sense? Well, you're actually right. It's a kind of weird non-space, which I, it's, it's partly modelled after Brisbane's geography. It just happened to be there and was writing most of it. Okay. But it's uh, so various street names and places have sort of been borrowed, but it's not specific. Uh Brisbane has a nice geographical uh, quirk where there's a river that runs through the main city, which bends back on itself so many times that sometimes it's quite hard to tell what side the river you're on. Um, And that's quite a nice sort of, I don't know, metaphor for the metaphor, if you like. Yeah. Um, But what I wanted is, I wanted a story because I feel that because I was pretending to be a zombie apocalypse story, um, the most common zombie apocalypse stories that you see are the ones which are set in America, for example, or partly because I think that it's a type of story which is it's, it's kind of wedded in part to American gun culture, because an awful lot of these stories, as I said beforehand, were survival fantasies. Mm. And so the idea that people can take up arms and go off and start shooting all of these things, whereas 
Oh, we're in the UK, for example, the big joke of uh, Shaun of the Dead is that <laughs> there is one gun in the pub that is named after, and it might not even work. Whereas in America, everyone sort of finds it very easy to suddenly find all these gun shops and just stock up on ammo and then go out, guns are blazing. So I wanted it to be in a place where that sort of response was more plausible. Uh, but I didn't want to be specific because I didn't want to pin it down to one particular place because, yeah, as you said, it's kind of a bit more general than that. And I think the idea as well, the main characters, they're not entirely sure where they are. The whole American thing, obviously, that's what your mind goes to because it is such an American archetype, you know, the, the Romero thing and, and everything since. And And this is a bit of a trivial point, but there's a scene during the supposed outbreak, he says, advisedly, when TV cameras capture a man seemingly eating another man. And I don't know if you remember this, but it put me in mind of the bath salts cannibal panic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you know, that completely slipped my mind. Otherwise, I'd have probably included that. <laughs> yeah, it was this really weird thing. It was 2012 when there was a, a guy, I've, I've forgotten the names, which is bad, but... This this guy who was at the time supposed to be as high as a kite on this this you know absolute demon drug bath salts um, started he attacked a homeless man and started literally eating his face whilst he was alive. Yeah, I mean, God, the number of stories about stuff like that from the US, well, from anywhere, um... Florida mainly. <laughs> but I remember I recall having this genuine moment of thinking, "Here we go, the apocalypse." is imminent, you know, and I, and I, I'm a rational thinking human being and even who understands that zombies cannot exist. But the point I'm making is that the zombie archetype at the time, you know, a decade ago was so ubiquitous in culture. Everything was zombies. that yes. it, it, it made me realize at the time how immersion in culture and immersion in media in that way can can overwhelm your your rational brain and i was for a second you know was thinking oh god it's happening which i mean that's a frightening thought in itself that that pop culture can have that effect on you and i know you didn't intend it this way because it wasn't a reference to that event but your book is all about how the cultural narrative is is very powerful so it so it kind of works as the perfect reference to that event even though you didn't mean it that way do you know what i mean does that make sense what i've just said no no it does absolutely um i mean it's a kind of it it, it was definitely on my mind because it's very interesting just seeing how people sort of take on board um, or draw conclusions from even just the smallest bit of media that is shared anywhere this idea that the virus is itself the, you know, the zombie is a meme in this thing which is kind of a weird way of putting it this episode is supported by Novelic, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. Obviously, in reality, so much of this perspective shift 
it's political. In reality, we live in very entrenched times, we've said. But it's never clear in this book whether the political divide makes the same appearance. It's never made very obvious whether this infection and this loss of perspective affects people on the right or the left. And I wondered, in your mind, would the two camps in this story sit safely on either side of the political divide that we would recognise? Possibly. I think what's interesting, as I said before, I didn't particularly want to just wag fingers, um, but I I think there are some things which I think quite deliberate, like, oh, I don't know. I I think that everybody is susceptible, as I said. One thing I think is quite interesting is the fact that they end up with a group of, the various groups of people who do get infected seem to be both survive, gun nut survivalists and diehard genre fans, <laughs> who I wouldn't necessarily put on the same table anywhere. But I can imagine, j- j- just for an assumption, for example, the idea, if you're sort of familiar with zombie lore or zombie stories, and you started seeing clips about this and people said, this is a zombie apocalypse, it's entirely understandable, perhaps, if you would start to become susceptible to that yourself because this is a within your interest or whatever, or this is something that you're familiar with. It's not necessarily a political thing, but it might end up aligning you with that. In this case, I mean, not in general, obviously, I'm not suggesting that. So it's, it's a little bit sort of more wibbly. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to sort of get too much into political stuff, because I think that it's a path that you can find yourself. I'll ask you one more political question, then I will let you, um, we'll move on. To well, the- no, the thing is, it, 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 it is interesting. I'm just trying to figure out the best way of um, phrasing it. <laughs> I think it's less case of pointing fingers. It's more the case of... Um, I don't want to just write a. I don't want to just write a polemic. Yeah, that I can see. This is certainly not polemical. It, it's as I say, it's much more sympathetic. If anything, it's about how everyone is a victim and vulnerable. Um, it's it's not. This is a, a novel, strangely almost without antagonists. Um, but it it would be a very easy way to reduce this book and as a, to sort of like a satirizing of the MAGA crowd. And, and the other yes. global versions of that phenomenon. So we, we could say that. No, I think you could. Yeah, for argument's sake, if we were to see it as a satirising, in the same way that Don't Look Up, the film on Netflix, is a, is a, a satirising of, of that kind of self-imposed, blinkered view of the world, you know. I actually don't like to use the word MAGA crowd because I think we've all got far too comfortable with dismissing whole sections of population. So let me start again. <laughs> That's all right. It's a, it's a thorny book, this. It takes a lot to kind of weave your way through. Um, if you were to accept for a moment that this was a book that was primarily satirising that blinkered right-wing view of society, at the same time, you aren't afraid to skewer the other side. So briefly, to explain, introduce two characters. Our protagonist is a guy called Spence, who is the guy who goes back out into the world and has gained some enlightenment on his previous misperception of reality. And and one of the major characters in his life is a character called Macy, who, as you say, is a massive genre fan. She's somebody who writes really hardcore horror, but she's very much a kind of dyed-in-the-wool liberal lefty, isn't she? Yes. But I I loved this one section where Spence is talking about Macy and about her vehemence and her her commitment to causes. And he says, I'm going to quote the book, he says, Macy took the opposite political side 
to my old colleagues at the factory, but her vehemence reminded me of them. She talked about television shows and comic books with the same kind of zeal, the canon of popular culture as candy-coloured gospels to be built up and torn down. Now, I love that because I am, I'm a liberal lefty who is sometimes exhausted by my own side of the argument because I, I worry that we on the left are incredibly guilty of triviality because as much as I obviously value culture and I say it's politically important, I do worry that we're often left arguing over the ethics of TV shows and comic books while the world fucking falls apart. Yeah, I, would, I, I, I think that's true. I think, um, I mean, I'd also, I generally describe myself as a terrible lefty, by which I think that from the right-wing point of view, I'm terrible because I'm left-leaning, and from the left point of view, I'm terrible because I'm probably incompetent at it. <laughs> Um, that is beautifully put, by the way. I'm going to borrow that. So, I, I'm an incompetent lefty. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it frustrates me the infighting on the left, I think, um, because I think there's this requirement for perfection which is unattainable. The more you pursue the perfect, the more you let down the people that we're trying to pick up, if that makes sense. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. It makes exact sense. I, I feel like, I mean, we are way away from the butt now, but sod it, in for a penny, yeah. for a pound. Um, we, I find like things happen where you'll get somebody who is, I mean, I'm not into cancel culture. That's all nonsense. I, you know, Kevin Hart is still a millionaire. Yeah. JK Rowling is still a rich woman. I don't believe any of that. But <laughs> there's things like the James Gunn thing with Suicide Squad, who was, you know, hold over the calls for some tweets that he wrote. And I just think like, if you're spending your time attacking James Gunn, do you understand what the Tory party are getting away with whilst you're doing this? That's, you know, or what, you know, Scott Morrison or... Oh, God, yeah. Insert yeah. political demon of choice. I just think, what what are you giving these people the, the, the veneer to hide behind and do their work whilst you're picking on a fucking film director? I, do you know what I mean? I just that, That's my problem. I think your book skewers that beautifully. You take these people who are like diehard genre fans, my people, and you reveal the extent to which, given the exact right crisis, they fall completely into line with the people that they would think of as the antithesis of themselves. Yeah. It's, oh, God. <laughs> this, this is why I try to avoid Twitter. <laughs> Very wise. Right, well, we've waxed long and lyrical about politics, so let's let's get back to the horror before, because I'm sure I've got listeners just kind of shaking their head right now. Let's let's get back into the meat of the book itself. So, the book begins with a direct narrative address to the reader. Here's another quote: "You start with this. Whenever I tell people what happened, I tell them it was a love story, and then you go on to say, when you say you're going to tell people a horror story." They sit up in their chairs defensively, waiting to see you fail. When you tell them it's a love story, they relax. They open themselves wide. So which is it, Malcolm? Is it a love story or a horror story? Well, I think that's for... Oh, come on, I can't tell people that, can I? I think that's for anybody to judge. I, what I wanted to do was I, I, I was just trying to sort of set up this idea that narratives aren't necessarily what you think they are. And I think that's, the, that, that's, a, that's a true idea, this idea that if you tell people it can be a horror story, then you can see audiences just tense up and tease. What about a horror story makes people want to see you fail in your eyes? Well, why does that happen? 
Well, it's, it's, it's more that I think people sort of see horror uh, as a challenge sometimes. The idea of a horror has come, not, not from everybody, obviously, but um, from some expectations. I think when you sort of do a say, uh, public reading of a horror story, people are going, okay, then, come on then, come at me, give it your best shot. And at the end, it's like, yeah, that's, yeah, that was all right. That was good. Well, I wasn't scared at all. I, I didn't freak me out. It didn't upset me. A bit tame, really. If you sort of lower the defences first, I think that you get a different reaction. I think that's interesting. Partly, again, because of sort of managing perception and managing expectation. Um, often by lying, and that's fine. <laughs> so I'm not entirely convinced that And I Woke Up is a horror story or a love story, to be fair. I think you can breathe both into it if you like. Um, I think arguably it's perhaps more science fiction, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it defies genre. And, and, and the conversation of, of is it a horror story comes up a lot. I generally do this really annoying thing of, of saying, I have no time for that question. But in your case, which is it? You know, and so I, I think um, it, it's certainly not a horror story in the way that you necessarily would think it was by reading the first few pages. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty bleak. It's, but, um... it's very bleak. And it's it's a horror story... In in it's a it's a, a it's a lens it's a mirror I think more than anything else you know I mean there are some pretty yeah. bloodthirsty bits when stuff is going down there's some nice grue for people who like that yeah. kind of thing but that's not well, in any way to my eyes where the actual genuine anxiety lies. But it was interesting actually when I was writing that because the whole the the, the gory scenes for example is I don't normally I, I've never normally done that before I was writing the story thinking well I know what it is I know I know what it isn't. I'm going to go along here. And then, of course, I get to a point, it's like, oh, I actually have to write a zombie scene. I have to write a zombie attack. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> oh, so was, that, so was that kind of something you felt like you were, you were kind of obligated to throw to the audience? No, not at all. I mean, I think it was important for the um, how the story was working because, you know, this was the character's reality at that time. And I mean, what was interesting there was just going, okay, so I, I don't normally write action scenes. I'm not very good at writing action scenes. And so it's a whole new set of muscles to work out, I suppose. I sort of, I mean, I wanted it to sort of feel like a zombie movie, but it was just quite strange and out of nowhere. It's like, oh, this is, I've completely had my depth for this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I hope it works, obviously. It's a strange one because you present these scenes, and often you present the scene, there's some quite cool bits where you see the scenes from different perspectives, which kind of quite, it doesn't just double the horror it kind of, you know, it, it, it multiplies the horror because you, the, the reality of what was actually going on is far worse than the than the comic book idea of a zombie attack. When you realise that the people being killed are not zombies, it, yeah. that, is, that is awful. You know, the, 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 the implication of all that is quite sickening. But, yeah, no, I never, to be frank, I, I wasn't really bothered whether it was a horror story or not. I was just too captivated by the rightness of the, the metaphor, and I know you said you didn't want it to be purely a metaphor, but it felt like the metaphor we've all been waiting for, that we all, <laughs> that we all need. You know, we, we, I feel like since 2016 and Trump and Brexit and the dawn of this new age of disinformation, oh, God, yes. it feels like we've been waiting for a, for a genre in order to really take it on properly. I mean, what, what was weird was, I mean, I, I, I sold this at the beginning of 2020, and then, of course, the pandemic came along, and then uh, Trump was elected out of office. Um, and I thought, oh, this isn't going to be relevant by the time it comes out. <laughs> um, 
But no, it, it still is, which is mortifying. If, I, if anything, I mean, the conspiracy theories have just multiplied since. And I, sh- I should say as well that I've, although I don't necessarily consider this horror, that's no reflection on horror at all. I, 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 I do like horror, it's just I'm not always particularly good at it. I think it's because I always tend to undermine myself. Uh, well, I think what you're saying there is you're not, you don't consider yourself to be good at the the typical narrative beats of horror because this is a horror novel and, and, and it's a very good horror novel. So you may not feel you're skilled at writing about zombies and vampires and things that go bump in the night and you take werewolves out of werewolf stories. That's fine. But this is undoubtedly a horrifying novel. And I think, oh, yeah, you should, you. you should be under no illusion about that. Um, pick up on one other thing. I mean, it, it's all kind of framed on the same stuff, this, the, you know, the, the power of narrative. Um, but there are a few more po- I've already said already this was a launch pad for a lot of things I already think but there's yeah. there, there are two particular things that kind of came bubble to the surface in this book and I'm not sure whether I'm imposing them there because I already think this or whether they're, they're actually there but we'll take them kind of in order first of all Spence at one point describes how when he was a kid he quote read voraciously because words on a page felt committed in a way words said out loud, did not. Now, there's something important in that concept of committed to me, the idea of like committed truth, the primacy over the, of the written word, over the flippancy and the spectacle of speech. Because I think that's what we've given way to with Trump, you know, and, and this idea of the, what Michael Gove said, we asked, that Michael Gove is a, a dirtbag politician for the UK, those who don't know. And he famously said, we are sick of experts, this this ridiculous notion that experts are the enemy and that we want to move away from written down, verified information. Um, I wondered, have you heard of the concept of the Gutenberg parenthesis? Uh, remind me. So it's this theory that came out a few years ago by two scholars called Thomas Petit and um, Lars, I think it's Sauerberg. And and this idea just fascinates me. And your and that phrase that about you know words words on a page being committed uh, in a way that words said it led were not. That's the heart of it. Because what what they basically said was that we had millennia of oral tradition where you could only really trust stories in as far as they went back. You know you could trust the teller. You know that you know, these things became disseminated and became you know shaggy dog tales and truth were morphed and and for millennia we had that and then we got the gutenberg printing press and for and for a short few centuries we had the written word as an anchor for knowledge that's interesting the gutenberg parenthesis as opposed to the gutenberg hypothesis is that that period has ended and that this this current thing about valuing you know what's the phrase different facts or whatever what what is it that the Trump, Trump alternative facts and this idea of what you say is the truth and you can have different realities and different facts the argument is that that isn't a blip that is a wholesale return to pre gutenberg oral communication that to me is terrifying you know we've lost the enlightenment if we got if, if that's what we go with but then have you read um Ted Chang's The Truth of Facts, The Truth of Feeling. No, my, my wife loves Ted Chang. I haven't read him. Because that's a really interesting one where it's talking about the introduction to written um, records and how the truth of fact and the truth of feeling are two very separate things. The idea uh, there's sort of two parallel stories running at the same time in it. And the idea how we might have lost equally, 
lost something, by the way, that everything's recorded as a complete verified fact. It's more complicated than that, obviously, because it's Ted Chiang. He's sort of working <laughs> on about 300 different ideas a second. Um, but it's extraordinary, and it's very uh, definitely worth reading uh, based on that, though, the good parenthesis idea. So I think those two actually play really interestingly together. So it's sort of the flip side that we've lost something by making everything verifiable, that we've lost the truth of feeling. Yeah, it's interesting and very clever. Yeah. To to finish by going back to the book, um, because I keep taking us off on these mad tangents, um, the book ends with this eerie implication that, that maybe, just maybe, there is more to the story than we think that we can't be entirely sure, even at the end, if the narrative we've read is the truth. You know, let alone, it's a book about narratives being untrue, and we can't even trust whether that is a true narrative. And I wondered, was it important to you at the end to leave that lingering doubt? Does does that tie back into the overall purpose of the book? Uh, yes, I think so. I think it's because there's this, this idea of certainty in one narrative i think is probably impossible the idea that being cured of believing in one thing doesn't necessarily mean you're not susceptible to others and i think that was an important thing to get across i hope because i, I, I don't want people coming out of it going well i'm all right jack i don't believe in zombies <laughs> um because it's probably not about zombies there's probably other stuff that we aren't necessarily paying the right attention to but again it's kind of less finger wagging kind of way <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we we could insert literally any threat into this misperception, couldn't we? You know, the infected could see anything and it wouldn't change the fundamental way the story works. Yeah. To, to, to anchor this with horror at the end, why did you choose zombies as the the kind of cultural meme that, that becomes so powerful? Why, why not something else? Why zombies? Well, as, I mean, as you said before, zombies, they, they, there was this time, I think, at the... Uh, after Sean the Dead and 28 Days Later and stuff, the zombies were just everywhere. It was, a, it was a very cheap thing to produce where you just need a bunch of mates with uh, pancake makeup and just have them chasing people in a you know, wooded back lot. There was, a, right now, you could argue that there's this, the tipping point is all superheroes. There's just nothing but superheroes around things. But there was this sort of weird time where it was mostly just zombies. But it's, it ties in very well with a virus, obviously, and the idea of something infectious. Also, um, there's, you know, I mean, although I sort of, I said that I, I, I'm troubled by the idea that an awful lot of the zombie story become survival fantasies. George Romero's original trilogy is still incredibly strong and also works very well from an allegorical level, if you like. Although he, uh, so the first one, for example, Night of the Living Dead, um, the ending of that is still completely devastating. And it's, again, you can sort of, look at it and sort of read it from all kinds of different points of views. And so I think there was a long history of zombies being used as a kind of universal metaphor for things. They've been misused a lot since, but I think it's a sort of, it's a long tradition of that. Um, Yeah, so I think that's, um, so I was interested in continuing that. And also it's something that everybody gets, I think. There was a kind of assumption that you can start off by going, this guy was cured and there's an infection rampaging outside. People go, right, zombies. I long thought that zombies served a purpose. Back in that in that, that kind of cultural moment when they were everywhere, my theory was basically that 
the, the zombie is a perfect trope to represent any kind of dehumanized enemy and that that it, it yes. came to the fore because we were we were happily waging a war that depended on the idea of the the enemy you know basically the islamic world as an homogenous faceless reasonless mass and that if we yes. could use if we could make zombies so ubiquitous it would make this is my sort of tinfoil hat wearing theory it, it would make people comfortable with the idea of just mowing down the enemy yeah that, absolutely right but that, that, that that's, that's definitely going through my mind the, the idea of the horde the faceless horde that it's okay for you to kill it's fine for you to kill these things that are not like you that's deeply troubling obviously um but it does sort of definitely move away from what say the original sort of Michael Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead and so on, which has much, much more interesting and intelligent ideas behind where they're going. The fact that the zombies become more faceless the more zombie films you get seems to miss the point of what some of this horror is supposed to be. The idea is that these are people you know who are trying to meet mm. you. These are people who are wearing the face of people you love. This is also the case that if they you might become one and then do harm to people that you love because they cannot, you know, back away from you. They, they, they can't let you go. That's terrifying. But that's pretty much gone for most of these things. That's why your book's such a neat, tight metaphor because there's this real, like, clever irony that these people see zombies, which in turn makes them a different kind of intellectual zombie. They then become zombified essentially because of the, the, their behavior is overridden by this you know infecting narrative and then they have to when they get better when they wake up to quote the title that they unlike the typical zombie they have to suffer from the knowledge of what they've done and that seems to me the ultimate kind of horror of this story yeah i mean i i think that i think betrayal is an incredibly powerful engine for horror stories both the sense that you might be betrayed and also the sense that you might be in a position where you end up letting people down in the worst possible way. It's just such a clever, neatly tied off idea. I just, yeah, congratulations on it. I think, as I Thank say, you. it feels Thank like... Thank you very the, much indeed. It feels like the metaphor we've been waiting for, um, for this shit show that we're all in at the minute, God which hopefully us. will get better. I mean, maybe <laughs> the maybe the double whammy of COVID and Putin's war will wake us all up to the importance of having real information again maybe when you look at russia and and you see the the disinformation and the the zombified state that that population is in maybe we can look at them and think perhaps we should stop dicking about with the way we handle the media but i say that then you look at tucker carlson and you think is the hope i don't i don't know i don't know yeah no it's 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 just frustrating hmm Let's end on a high note because there there is a positive note I can I can extract from this story because there's a there's a lovely commentary at one point um, that made me smile amidst the carnage about the value of comfort reading, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and with that in mind, I wonder can I ask you to recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? Okay, I mean this won't be a comfort read. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be, you'd be surprised what my listeners can find a comfort read. Yes, yeah, fair enough. I mean, the, the, probably most of them have read this already, but I, I would recommend, I'd, I'd like to recommend The Wake by Elizabeth Knox. Okay, this is a new one. I always like when I get a new one. I haven't heard of this, so so tell me about it. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Knox, who's a New Zealand writer, and she wrote a novel called The Wake, 
which is also about the aftermath of uh, something shocking, a sort of proper sort of horror scenario. But she does a, some very interesting stuff with it. Uh, so essentially, what it is, she's uh, you have an awful there, there, there's there's a horror trope of a kind of evil coming into a small community. So uh, Stephen King's played this a lot, and things yeah. like Salem's Lot and uh, Needful Things. Or whatever. So you have a seed of evil that comes in, people start noticing, other people start falling for it and so on, and by the end of the book, it, I think, just explodes and there's carnage. The wake begins with the carnage. <laughs> uh, in, in the first chapter, basically, a small town in New Zealand just rips itself apart and pretty much everybody except 14 people die. And it's horrifying. <laughs> and but then they end up finding themselves trapped in this town with potentially whatever it was that caused this in the first place, and then the fractures just start to grow from there. But it's really elegantly done. Uh, Elizabeth Knox is a fantastic writer. She had a book out last year, I think, called The Absolute Book, which is this big oh, fantasy novel. Which... Yes, I, this was massive, wasn't it? It got that got all kinds of good reviews. Yeah, well, which, well, I mean, it's fantastic, but this this is. I mean, she, she's also done uh, why uh, fantasy books before. She did a, a ghost story in the vineyard called The Vintner's Luck. Um, the Wake is just pure down the line horror, but it's it hits all of the stuff that I like because it's very much about, as I said, about betrayal and the idea of the biggest fear is sort of, you know, letting people down, which is, uh, or just, you know, putting people in danger but in the wrong way and so on. And it's, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, and very New Zealand. So this sort of planet as well. So I felt that was appropriate. Brilliant. I will check that out. That sounds exactly my kind of thing. Exactly my kind of thing. I, yeah, I'll definitely hunt that down. My last question, Malcolm, is what truly scares you? Well, I think we've covered some of that. Um, I think there's a couple <laughs> of things probably. One is one is big distances and no okay. way to traverse them. So there's that, that, that's something which I think really sort of struck home, as I said, during the pandemic. It's the idea of basically being locked on the other side of the planet and going, okay, so if I needed to get home, if I need to get back to the UK just to check if it was okay, how would I do that? What would the best way of doing that? Would I be able to do that? I've got no idea. Um, and I think, as I said, this idea of betrayal. Uh, we, uh, it's, it's not a case, I've, not just the idea of bad things happening to your loved one. The idea of something bad happening to people you love when it's your fault and it's okay. entirely down to you. I think that's terrifying. We've just, uh, we have a... Uh, Four and a half month old kid, and suddenly the entire house just feels like a death trap. Everything <laughs> that we spent our last years together just buying and accumulating. It's like, why did we get that? Why do we get a coffee table that rotates with really sharp corners? <laughs> why do we have so many choke hazards and strangulation? <laughs> Everything just looks like it's made with razored edges these days, and it's <laughs> weird. Well, yeah, so distance and coffee tables. They sound Distance like perfectly. They sound like perfectly reasonable <laughs> fears for a new father to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, we'll end, we'll end it there because it's early where you are and it's very late where, where I am, and uh, I'm recording this in the room above where my wife is currently sleeping. So I probably need to get off the line before she comes and murders me. Um, but honestly, I, I just want to say, like, as I, I said, started off with a grandiose claim about this novella, but I just think it's so clever, and I think. 
anyone who's worried about the state of things should should go and read it. It, it probably won't make you feel better, but it might give you some kind of um, lexicon with which to articulate your fears. Um, yeah. And then I woke up. Well done. And, and, and Malcolm, thanks for talking scared. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. told you I talked a lot. I think I broke the first rule of podcasting there. Don't speak more than the guest. Malcolm was more than happy to let me wander off on those tangents, which is something I perhaps exploited a little bit more than I should have done. I do mean it though. This book articulated loads and loads of things that I've been thinking and mulling over for years and, and struggling to condense down to a clean idea. My wife has heard the, the very rough very drawn out drafts of all these thoughts. (laughs) And then I woke up really is a story that directly confronts this moment in history, our shared crisis. And I'm still not entirely sure that we did the book justice in that episode, but I recommend everyone read it. It's a slight novella. You'll finish it in two sittings and I would love to hear what you think about it. In fact, let's get that bit out of the way now, actually. If you want to contact the show aka me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Patreon subscribers can also chat to me and each other directly via the Novelic book app. Just sign up and request to join the Talking Scared Patreon book club. And speaking of Patreon, it's going from strength to strength and a massive thanks to everyone who supports Talking Scared. Recent subscribers include Tasha Diaz, Logan Braswell, Sean Cope and Courtney McClurkin, which is a fabulous surname to say. Anyone else who wants to support the show can join up via the link in the show notes or go straight to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. And you're just in time for me to start my huge ranking of every Stephen King book, which could essentially be a podcast in itself, you lucky, lucky people who weirdly want more of this voice. Right, enough admin though. Let's talk about the Bath Salts cannibal. (laughs) Who remembers that guy? I mean, I mentioned him to Malcolm without having the details to hand, but I've looked into it and he was named Rudy Eugene. And in May 2012, he went viral, slight pun intended, for biting half the face off a homeless man named Ronald Popo. And that includes biting out Popo's eyes. Obviously, it doesn't pay to make light of horrendous assault. But it did become something of a meme. Everyone grabbed their petticoats and blamed this new bath salts drug that was supposedly sweeping the nation. And as it turned out, Eugene only had traces of weed in his system. And to today, no one really knows why he did what he did. Like I said to Malcolm, that piece of footage scared me badly for about five minutes. And you can find the footage on YouTube. I'm not going to link to it because it seems in bad taste to link to something so real and awful. But you can find it. Um, But yeah, we were all so inundated with zombie culture that it took a beat before sanity resettled and I could put that narrative to bed. And what makes it surprising is that Malcolm uses almost exactly that scene in his novella for that same purpose without realising the reference. And 
It just shows that pop culture burrows down deep, doesn't it? Two good things came out of the bath salts cannibal incident, or more properly, the Miami cannibal attack. First of all, Ronald Popo, although he was left disfigured and blind, as awful as it is, got off the streets for the first time in, in nearly 40 years. And according to Wikipedia, he reconnected with his estranged family and learned to play the guitar. So, if you're out there, Ronald, well done, man. We're all proud of you. Secondly, more trivially, the same incident prompted a conversation between me and a friend in which she revealed that she had a completely zombie-proof cellar in her house. For real. Like, she could definitely survive the fall of mankind. Oh, how we laughed at her. But oh, we also kept her address firmly to mind and kind of had a route in mind to get there if the shit hit the fan. Now, aside from references to real-life zombie cannibals, I'm aware this was a serious conversation. It needed to be, because these are deadly serious matters about truth and how we preserve it. And you know how much I love a good rant about politics and I see all literature in whatever genre, as indivisible from the political. But, I don't want to get too bogged down in the harsh reality of life all too often. That's not why we read horror, or any books in the main. We need variety in all things, including this show. A spectrum of tones, even if every colour in that spectrum is tinged dark. And that's why next week I'm treating you to something completely different from this week. A good old-fashioned ghost story with returning guest and one of my favourite people, V.L. Valentine. She came on the show all the way back last March with her debut, The Plague Letters. And she's back again with a piece of high gothic goodness called Beggar's Abbey. So don't miss that episode. It's basically me chatting to a friend about her book and what it was like to live in Washington, D.C. during the Great Orange Uprising. That's next week, and there's just more and more goodness and grimness to come after that, including, in a very few weeks, the first instalment of Talking Bird, the big John Connolly, Charlie Parker read-along. And if you want to take part in that and read along with me and my very exciting, soon-to-be-announced co-host then pick up the first in that series, ASAP. It's called Every Dead Thing, and it's the start of something incomparably brilliant. Until then, though, turn off the TV, choose your websites carefully, go outside and apply some critical thinking, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>